All right. Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25. Elspeth's going to come read to us, beginning in verse 19. So Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went, to, went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. God. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw that there is a, a banner that flies over chapter 24 and 25. And it is the banner of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase is used four times. God's steadfast love is used four times in chapter 24. And that sheds light onto chapter 25. So last week we saw God's steadfast love to Abraham. In his later years, you saw God's steadfast love to Abraham by blessing Ishmael. And then we saw, we got into the first part of today's text and talked about how God showed steadfast love to Abraham by blessing Isaac. And... In the verses that were just read, we're going to see God's steadfast love really extended to Isaac as he gets his prayer answered and Rebekah conceives to have a son. We see that in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. And Isaac prayed and prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Dramatic pause. For 20 years. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebecca conceived. So we've got 20 years happening between those two sentences. And then we immediately find out in verses 22 to 24 that her pregnancy is very difficult. The two boys are going to war within her womb. And she wonders if she's actually going to live. It's so bad. There's so much turmoil within her. 
And so she goes to God, she seeks the Lord, and it says that God lets her in on a little secret. And the little secret is seen here in poetic form in verse 23, that there are two nations in your womb and two peoples from within you. They shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So even here, I think we see another facet of God's steadfast love and faithfulness in giving Rebecca a little heads up of what to expect. I mean, wouldn't we have loved that, right? When, when maybe some of you ladies were pregnant, dads, we would love to have known a little insight into what our kids were going to be like. So when they came out, we'd be a little more prepared. But it's God's steadfast love. He's showing them steadfast love. Now, I don't know if it shocked you as much as it should have shocked you last week or even this morning that God shows steadfast love and faithfulness to anyone, that God would show steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham and to Rebecca and to Sarah and to Isaac this way. It should be shocking, and I don't know if it shocks us like it should. I don't know if any of you have ever been shocked by electricity before or not. I have more times than I care to count. One of my most memorable times was when we were renovating a very old farmhouse and we took a wall down so we could open up the kitchen to the family room. And in that wall, there was a wire that went from the ceiling to the floor that had to be relocated, which meant it had to be cut. Well, I'm really good at stuff like this, so I shut all the breakers off to ensure that there's no power going to the cable. I climb up the ladder. I've got my cutters in hand, confident that there is no power going through this wire that's, I don't know, it's probably three-quarters of an inch, maybe an inch round. And I cut it, and all we heard was, bang. And actually, I didn't even hear it as fast. as it, it literally blew me off the ladder. So I went from here, and the next thing I know, I'm on the ground going, what the heck happened? And the pliers were basically fried, burnt. It was crazy. I mean, it, it literally shocked me and blew me off the ladder. That is the impact last week's sermon should have had on you when we talk about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. It should shock you. It should blow you off your spiritual ladder. You should go, wow, God shows steadfast love and faithfulness to humans. God shows it to Abraham and to Isaac. He shows it to Rebecca, and he shows it to Sarah. And so here it is, the, this, another demonstration, if you will, of steadfast love. He lets Rebecca in on this little secret of the kids. And then in verses 24 to 26, they finally arrive. They're born. Her day of giving birth happens. And it sounds like it was probably a very tumultuous birth. It was hard for her. I'm sure those looking on wondered if she was even going to make it. And then she has the twins, and immediately we begin to fast forward to adulthood. I mean, all we know is that Esau comes out, and Jacob has his hand wrapped around his ankle, trying to, like, no, get back in here. And, like, he wants to be first, and there's a fight going on, even as they're trying to be born. But then we go right into manhood, right into adulthood, when we get into verses 27 to 34. And here we get a little glimpse into their personalities. Jacob and Esau have personalities that come out pretty strong um, in the book of Genesis. We've got a hunter and we've got a cook. We've got a man who would rather be out in the woods and a man who would rather be in the kitchen. A man who is loved more by his mother and a man who is loved more by his father. We also see, I think, the worst come out of both of them in the very first story that we hear about them. I, I think we sort of get to peek in the kitchen window as Esau gets back from what is probably an unsuccessful hunt. And we get to watch how Esau and Jacob interact. 
And it shows us much about their personalities. And look at, look at verse 29. Let's look at it again. Maybe you're familiar with how it goes. But once when Jacob was cooking stew, we see him cooking. He's in there. He's got the big pot going. Esau comes out from the field, and he is exhausted. And Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I don't know how you don't read this without some emotion, some whining, some sarcasm, or some extreme language, but it has to be there, I think. I am about to die. I don't think he's really about to die. I'm sure he has a few more days left in him without eating, but in his mind, maybe you've been there too, where you've been so hungry you thought, I'm about to die. What use is my birthright to me? Well, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. So more of their personality comes out in this story. It seems that you've got Esau, the hunter. He's compulsive. He wants instant gratification. Perhaps he's a little more dramatic with his I'm about to die statement. And Esau also seems to be a pretty bad son. To see this, you've got to jump ahead a little bit. But in chapter 26, verse 34, it says this, that when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barah, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, and daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And verse 35 says, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So there is some kind of family dynamic going here that doesn't seem to me like, make it, like he was a very good son, either to his mom and to his dad. And then we get another picture of him later on in chapter 33, where they're going to be reunited. I don't know if you guys remember this story. So they've separated, and then they're about to be reunited, and Esau is coming from a distance, and Jacob is there, and he sees him coming, and Jacob thinks that Esau is going to probably kill him when he gets to him. And instead, when he gets to him, Esau, it says, he, he runs to him, he puts his arm around his neck, he's joyful, he's so happy, he begins to weep over his brothers. There's this emotional, passionate moment that we see in his life. So it seems like he's a guy who's full of emotion, full of joy, full of passion, full of life, and also full of sin. Selling his birthright, just because he's hungry. Just, I don't care about that, I want food, and I want food now. And then there's Jacob. So Jacob, on the other hand, is described as a quiet, more reserved man. He'd rather be inside cooking. But he's also a schemer and a trickster. Yeah, you notice the word now in verse 31 and in verse 33? He wants Jacob to give, he wants Esau to give him his birthright now. He's like a salesman. Like, sign now. Like, quick, I'm going to give it to you. It's almost like one of you had the bowl like under his nose. Like, give me birthright now. Give it to me now. I'll, I'll take it. So he's a schemer. He's taking advantage of his brother and the opportunity that he has before him. In chapter 26, we're going to see him pull the same stunt that his father pulled in calling his wife his sister so that Abimelech doesn't kill him. It's like father like son. Abimelech must be like, man, this family's messed up. Every time they have a good-looking wife, they say it's their sister. So he's going to pull that stunt again. And in verse 27, Isaac just flat out calls his son deceitful. He says, Jacob is deceitful. He acts deceitfully. And then, the, back to the story where they reunite later in chapter 33, Jacob's approach to making sure that Esau doesn't kill him is, I'm going to send some people ahead of me with gifts so that maybe it'll soften his heart so he won't kill me. And then he sends a second wave of people after the first wave. and says, hey, you guys go bring them, give him gifts too. Soften him up a little bit for me. And then he sends a third wave of people out 
to soften up his brother more so that when he gets there, he won't kill him. So he, he's, he's a mastermind. He's a little bit of a deceiver. He's a little bit of a think-ahead, see, plot, and plan to get things to work out to his advantage. So even though they're very different, it does seem that God does not paint either of them in a very good light. When you read their stories, even just that little bit, I mean, there's stuff about both of their lives, their character, that seem to have some serious issues. So there's the story for this morning. There, there it is, Jacob, Esau, their birth. And so what do we do with it? What, what, do, what do we get out of this little snap, snapshot of their lives? Well, the first thing is this. I just say, keep in mind that this little, it's almost, this is almost like a movie trailer. It's almost like we're going to give you a quick little snapshot of their lives because the next 10 chapters are all about them. So this is like setting the stage for what to expect for the next 10, cha- 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. The other things that we think can learn from this or keep in mind in this is that God is continuing to push his promise forward. He's continuing to push the promise forward for Abraham to have sons that would be a blessing to the nations. And that seems to be a a clear theme here, that even though it took 20 years, God is still fulfilling his promise. And that God is doing it his way and not the world's way. The world's way would say the heir is the oldest son. And so God is deliberately flipping that upside down in this story to show the reader, to show us, to show Rebecca and Isaac that God does not do things the way the world does things. The world has a system set in place, and God's saying, no, when it comes to me keeping my promises and fulfilling my covenant, I'm doing it my way, and I'm going to do it differently so that you will know it's all me. You'll know that it's all me fulfilling the promise and has nothing to do with human effort. So that's, that's the story. Now, if this is all the information we had in God's word, we would move on to the next story. We'd move on to the next chapter. But this is not everything God wants to tell us about Esau and Jacob. There are two places in the New Testament where God uses these stories, the story of Esau especially, to make his point more clear that God is on his throne and that he is the one fulfilling his promises. One is in Romans, the other is in Hebrews. So I'm going to ask you guys to turn to Romans, to turn to the book of Romans. We are going to look at Romans chapter 9. I don't know if there's any of you that when I say Romans chapter 9, you go, oh no. (laughs) When I hear Romans chapter 9, I go, uh. That's kind of how I felt all week this week. As I've been looking into this chapter. This chapter, Romans chapter 9. It ain't me. I'm not even moving. It's always my fault, so I try not to move to prove it's not my fault this one time. All right, should I just go on? All right, I'm going on. All right, Romans 9 is 
not easy to understand, but it's also not super difficult to understand. Romans 9, I think, is just harder for us to believe because it says some very difficult things. Yet, I think it also says some very glorious things. And so we're going to look at Romans 9. And before we do, I want to invite our friend A.W. Tozer to say something to us about God and Romans 9. So here is what he says to us in a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which I think is on the back table. If you do not have a copy, read it. Here's what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's true. What you think about God, when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. I believe there's scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics, basically living like a Christian, that cannot be traced finally back to imperfect thoughts about God. So you have wrong thoughts about God, and that's what messes up our lives if we don't think rightly about him. Then he goes on to say this, Let us beware, lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration, and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So thoughts about God that aren't true is idolatry. We're, we're creating a God in our own image. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they're true. So it's just, basically it's creating a God that we're comfortable with. A God that fits our box and, and acts the way we want him to act. And if we do that, we're creating a God really in our own image, or the God that we want to have. And so we talk about being disciples of Jesus, and we say a disciple of Jesus is someone who knows God, loves God, and lives for God. And that first step is knowing him, knowing him truly and knowing him accurately. And I think that's really one of the goals of, of Sundays of us being together is to help us all grow together in understanding God rightly, knowing the Father and Son and Holy Spirit fully and accurately. Well, Romans 9 opens our hearts to a facet of God that is not often talked about. In fact, in most churches, either, this facet of God is either ignored at best or explained away at worst. As God reveals himself to us in this chapter, I think we've got to fight against the temptation to not believe what this says about him and to try to explain it away. So with that, let's get into Romans 9. Romans 9, this chapter, is a dilemma. There's a dilemma in the chapter. It's seen in verse 6. Here's what he says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the crisis of this chapter, that God's word has failed. And what he means by that, Paul is raising the question or, or interacting with the question that the church in Rome had, that God's word had failed, meaning God said through Abraham there would be the promise of blessing. But in Rome, all of these people are getting saved and none of them are descendants of Abraham. They're all Gentiles. So Gentiles are loving Jesus while Jews, descendants of Abraham, are rejecting Jesus. And so Abraham, so Paul here is going to argue that the reason that they don't understand that 
why they think God's word has failed, and it hasn't, is because they don't understand what it means to be a child of Abraham or a child. So here's what he says to them. Let me see if I get all this right. Here's what he says to them in verses 6 to 9. He, he distinguishes between children of the promise and children of the flesh. So let's just read this section together. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So do you see what's happening here? Basically, they were saying, oh, the children of Abraham. And he's saying, well, it's children of the promise. And he's drawing the line. He's distinguishing between these two different types of children. There's ones who are actually born in the line of Abraham. And then there's those who are children of the promise who aren't necessarily born in the line of Abraham, but they're still, in, they're still enjoying the promise. They're still getting the blessing. So they're children of the promise. And so he argues this for them. This is, this is the deal now. It's, it's children of the promise. So the question that that raises then is, how do I become a child of the promise? How do I get on the blessing then? If it's not through a bloodline, how do I get to be a child of the promise instead? And so that's what he says in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. So now he's going to define the promise for us. And he's going to use Sarah and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob to show that God's way of doing this goes all the way back to Genesis. That it was always this way. It was never meant to just be blood, but it was meant to be anyone could be a child of the promise and not necessarily just an heir through blood. And so here is what we're going to see in this little section. We're going to see there are five things about God and how he fulfills his covenant with the children of the promise. So these children of the promise. So he's going to tell us how this happens. How does it work? And the first one is this. To be a child of the promise, it is all based in God's timing. It is based in God's timing. So he begins with this example, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So God goes all the way back to Sarah to show the point that he is the one who is sovereign and in control of who is part of the promise, who is part of the family. And it'll happen in his timing with the children of the promise. And so, to make sure there's no chance involved, he tells them ahead of time. We've already studied this. He tells them ahead of time, in a year from now, you're going to have a baby. And then guess what happened? A year later, they had a baby. So it's like God's just way of saying, I'm in charge. I'm doing this my way, in my timing. This is not going to be done by human effort. In other words, the promise is not going to happen through human effort. And so he makes that clear by telling her that ahead of time, telling them that ahead of time. Then it's also based, how do I become a child of the promise? It's based in God's sovereign power. Because as you know, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were old. And Sarah had never had a child, never got pregnant, and now she's postmenopausal in her 90s. So there's no way she's going to have a baby unless God intervenes and does something supernatural. So once again, the point is God has to do it. God has to do the work. If there are going to be any children of the promise, it has to happen by the hand of God. It's not going to happen man's way or by man's hand. And so the, the point I think he's trying to make is that even back in the beginning, way back with Abraham and Sarah, the blessing was going to be great based on God's work, on God's hand, not man's. 
And then in verse 10, now he transitions to our story, to Rebecca. And he's going to talk about how Rebecca, in her story, reveals another layer of how God keeps his word with children of the promise. So look at verse 10. And not only so, so now he's going to transition from Sarah to Rebecca. Also, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So once again, God shows up, tells Rebecca, here's the deal, here's what's going to happen. He, he lets her know ahead of time, here's what the future holds. And I think what comes out of this pretty clear is this, that to be children of the promise, it is not based in man's goodness. Do you see that in the passage? It talks about good and bad and works. Key words in this passage. Before they had done anything, it says good or bad, good or bad in verse 11, and not because of works. So to be a child of the promise, it's not man's way of doing it. It's God's way. And it's not because of man's works. And it's not because man being good or bad that gets him in. And listen, I think he uses Rebecca here as an illustration to advance the illustration about Sarah because you could think, and I don't know whether Paul was in on this or not, but you could think, well, Ishmael had a few more years to live. He had 13 years to live, right, before Isaac was born. And maybe it was during those 13 years that God watched Ishmael and went, I'm sorry, yeah, Ishmael, and said, you know what, he's messed up, he's a sinner, so I'm going to give the promise to his brother. And so in this case, God eliminates that option by having them be twins. So no one gets a head start. So there's no chance that God was watching them going, oh, he's better than him, so I'm going to pick based on works. So it's like God advances his purposes in the next round of kids that are born. He wants us to see exactly what he's doing in that this is not about works. I didn't see anything good in him before I chose him. It's not based on that. It is based on God's choice. And so that's what he says next. It is based in God's election and God's calling. And this seems very clear in verse 11. It says, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So being a child of the promise requires a calling. It requires God electing. And that's what he says here. So the argument circle here is this, that the word of God is true. What God said is true about the blessing of Abraham being passed down. It is true in God keeping his covenant and that it is not being kept with people because they are related to Abraham. It's not being kept because they have done good things, but rather it's all based in God. It's all based in God working. It is all based in God calling. It is all based in God's timing. And then finally, the last thing you see in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So it is also based in love. It's based in love. So you've got children of the promise all the way back in Genesis that is now being fulfilled in the church in Rome. People are looking at it going, how come all these children are Gentiles? They're not related to Abraham. 
So Paul is trying to show them all the way back in Genesis, it was really never about your family bloodline. It was really about whether or not you were part of the promise through faith. And that's what the previous chapters of Romans are all about. So it's about love, based in love. And in verse 15, you can jump down there, he also says it is based in mercy and compassion. So we've got the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the election of God, the calling of God, the timing of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and all of those work together so that they are now children of the promise, which includes us here today. We are children of the promise. And I think, in light of our story in Genesis, here's the difficult part. We can understand Jacob I loved. Why does it have to say Esau I hated? I would much rather stand here today and not have that second phrase in my Bible. But we need to be glad that I'm not God and that you're not God and we need to believe that's there for a good reason. And so we've got to figure out what is that good reason. I mean, we're talking about Esau, right? We're in Genesis 25. God knew that when we were in Genesis 25 on Father's Day in 2022, that we would also have to go to Romans because that talks about Esau, and we'd land here. So happy Father's Day. <laughs> so what do you do with, but Esau I hated? I've heard many try to redefine the word hated. You know, it's kind of like when Jesus said, you shall love me and hate your mother and father. You know, it's, it's, it means just love less. He loved Jacob, but he loved Esau less. And I've heard that argument before. So you could redefine it. We could just ignore it and just pray and go home. Or we have to define it somehow. So I want you you good students of God's word, you're reading through your Bible plan, you get to this story, you get to verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Where are you going to go for a definition of hated? I'm going to give you a hint. It's right there in verse 13. What does it say? As it is written. So what do you ask? Where is it written? And if you know where it's written, then maybe it's going to help you understand. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So this is a quote from Malachi, the very last book of your Old Testament. So we're going to define this and understand what God wants to show us about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We've got to go to Malachi. So go to Malachi very last book of your Old Testament, chapter 1. This is God's word through the prophet Malachi to Israel. And here's what he says in verse 2. You guys there? Okay, Malachi, chapter 1. Here's what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country 
and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild with ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord's anger is forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So there, I think, we get a picture. We get a definition of what does it mean when God says, Esau, I hated. Do you see it? It's a four-part definition. It's almost like when we talk about love, right? Love's a verb. Good. First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it is not boastful, it is not proud. Well, here we're forming a definition that's the same way, only it's for the word hate. And there's four things that are included in it. I want you to look in your Bible. What, what words would you pull from here to understand what does it mean that God hated Esau? Verse 3. But Esau I hated, I have hated, I have laid waste. So if love is patient, love is kind, Hatred is laying waste, which literally means utter destruction. And then what does he say next? Yeah, heritage to jackals. Heritage to jackals. Jackals evidently eat everything. They eat animals and they eat plants. There are four species of jackals, for those of you who would like to know this. One is a coyote which we have in our neck of the woods. And we believe it was just one coyote came through and annihilated my neighbor's flock of chickens. 25 of them gone in one night. One coyote came and just killed them all. So that gives you a picture of the, the desolation. Like they, they, don't, they don't eat it all. They just destroy everything in their path. What's the next phrase to help us understand hatred? Tear down. It's to tear down, to destroy or beat down. And then there's one last phrase there, end of verse 4. Anger forever. So if we're going to do something similar with God's anger that we do with love, we would say, hatred lays waste to utter destruction. Hatred devours everything, tears down, destroys with abhorring anger. That's the definition of God's disposition towards Esau. Now, just to make it better, that's the way to put it, this is not the first time God has said that he hates people. Twice in Psalms. So Psalm 5, chapter 5, it says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And then in Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Maybe you've been taught God loves the sinner but hates the sin. In some way, that's true. But it also seems to be true that God hates the sinner and hates the sin, at least according to these verses 
here. And the proper response in verse 5 is that we're to respond with, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. He's God. He is to be feared. Another way to put that in the Hebrew is, let the Lord be magnified. So here we have this definition of anger, and the response is to be, let the Lord be magnified. So I think we need to be careful how we define Romans 9. When God says, I hated Esau, I think to understand that rightly and truly, we've got to really believe that God laid waste to Esau. That God loved Jacob, but God sent jackals to destroy everything Esau owned. That God loved Jacob, but God tore down Esau. God loved Jacob, but God is angry with Esau forever. Now, maybe this upsets you. Maybe this, this is disturbing to you and distraughtful. And look, I'm just the messenger. But this is what it says. And if we really love the God of this book, then we've got to deal with this somehow. And it is distraughtful. I mean, how can God say, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated before either of them were born? I mean, this is scandalous. Why love Jacob but hate Esau? I bet this disturbs all of us to varying degrees. And I think it's because we don't know ourselves. I think it's because we don't know us. I think it's because our evaluation of humans and of ourselves is way more elevated perhaps than it's supposed to be. We don't know the extent of our sin. You know, this is the danger of jumping into Romans 9 without having read chapters 1 to 8. But some of you know chapter 3. I mean, chapter 3 of Romans is very clear. If you want to flip back there. Romans 3, it says, verse 11. I'll give you a second if you want to get there. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Let me go back and just start it over again. None is righteous. No, not one. So I'm not the exception, although at times I think I am. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In, the path, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before them. That's God's description. I was just thinking back to Genesis. It didn't dawn on me until just now where God destroys the earth because every intention of man's heart is only evil continually. I mean, that's the condition of man. See, here's what the reality is. We should be more disturbed by God loved Jacob than we are that God hated Esau. Do you understand that? We should be more distraught by Jacob I have loved. How could that be? We should totally understand Esau I hated. That makes sense, Esau I hated, in light of God's description of humans. But when we read Jacob, we loved, we should be shocked off our ladder. 
we should be perplexed. How can God love Jacob? I feel like as I read this this week, I'm going, I have it backwards. I read Jacob I love, and I go, of course, Esau I hated. What? Instead, it should be Jacob I loved. What? Esau I hated. Of course. That puts it in the perspective that I think God would want us to have it in. I think it helps take away the confusion of what can appear here at first reading. Jacob, I love, should be shocking. And think about all the things we already know about Jacob. I mean, just from the little bit we just studied. I mean, he's not a loving guy. I mean, if he were your brother, you would have trouble loving him. If he ripped you off because you just wanted some stew that he could have just given you, you would not like your brother very much. And as the story goes on, Jacob just does more and more dumb things, sinful things, wicked things. So even as we walk through the story, we should not be surprised that God is going to hate Esau, but we should be shocked, perplexed, blown away that God would show love to Jacob. And so to finish this out, maybe to help round it out, Esau is mentioned another time in Hebrews 12. So one last stop, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is all about endurance and enduring. So Hebrews 12, verse verse 12 is where I want to read in a second. Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may be put out of joint, may not be put out of joint, rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's a key phrase. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I mean, these are sad words, and they're written for us, I think, for our edification to help us. And the key is Esau, according to this, had an opportunity to obtain the grace of God, but he didn't. See, Scripture is clear that God is sovereign and man is responsible. God is sovereign and man can make all the choices he wants. The problem is that on our own, all the choices we make have God caused to say hate and anger and damnation. And so God, in his kindness, extends grace. And in this case, he extends grace to Jacob. So think this passage is here to help us see that there's options for people. We should be wanting to obtain the grace of God. We should seek the grace of God. And also realize that for Esau, Esau's actions cut him off. Esau's behavior just nailed his life into the coffin through his sexual immorality, which is probably him taking Canaanite wives, 
and is unholy living. He's not wanting to live for God. Live in complete rebellion against him. And so he failed to obtain the grace of God. Grace is a crazy thing. Grace is crazy because we say grace is God blessing those who deserve punishment. Grace is God saving those who deserve damnation. But I think somewhere in all of our hearts is a sense in which we don't really believe we're fully damned. There's still enough good there. There's still something there that God must see. I behave enough enough, and then God's more impressed. And I, I think these stories are here as hard as they are to understand to realize that no, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. And that we should be shocked that God shows grace to anyone. We should be blown away at the grace of God. And I think sometimes the degree to which I struggle with God hating Esau is the degree to which I don't understand grace. Because I really understand grace. I'm more shocked. I should be more shocked that I'm saved. Perplexed that God loves me. And I know that all this leaves lots of questions. Still. And I firmly believe that when we get to heaven, God is going to show us and it's all going to make sense. I guarantee you God is only going to be better when you see him face to face than you think he is right now. You're not going to get there and go, oh, wow, I thought you were going to be better than that. <laughs> no, he's going to be better. And I think some of these things here that I, I still, I, I get it, but I still, it's hard. There's hard things here. But I think they're there for our good. And I think they're there to help us to stand amazed and shocked that you can say with confidence this morning, God loves me and I am forgiven and I am covered in grace. And to remember that when Jesus went to the cross and actually in the garden, he was like, Father, you know, I don't want to do this. Take this cup from me. And what was the cup? The cup was the Father's hatred. It was God's anger. So God's hatred and anger was poured out on Christ on the cross. That should perplex us. So that by grace, God's anger was diverted to him, and it's not on us anymore. That's perplexing. That's a mystery. That should blow us off our ladder. That Jesus would do that. He would take the hatred and the anger of God on himself, on the cross. And the moment the sky turned dark, Jesus absorbed all the Father's wrath on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. That, that is perplexing. That is mystery. That is amazing. That is wonderful. That is glorious. And that is something that we just want to believe more. I just want to believe it more. I just want to believe every day more that I'm really saved by grace and not by my behavior. And that I'm loved by God, not because I'm good enough, but because he simply chooses to show compassion and mercy and to love us. So we circle all the way back to Genesis, and we see that from Genesis all the way through to Romans, God's way has always been the same. It's him showing steadfast love and faithfulness to people who don't deserve it. 
People who deserve wrath, he blesses. People who he should hate, he loves. People that he should destroy, he has compassion on and mercy on. And it's never based on our works, on our goodness, on our ability, on our smartness, on our humility. It's all based in his grace and in his love. So may we grow in that. May, may we ask this week, how could God ever love me? And then to say, but he does. And his love is so high, so wide, so long, so deep, that it blows our minds and we can't even comprehend it. That we'd ask, why would God save anyone? And then rejoice in the fact that God has saved you. That we'd roll around in the grace of God and say, God, you've been merciful just because you're merciful. And enjoy his mercy. I was thinking about our last scripture memory, which ties in with this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And part of the curse of the law is being under the wrath of God. He redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to not just children of Abraham, but children of the promise, to the Gentiles. That's us. And so we get the blessing. So the whole story Genesis is all pointing, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, and how grace would come, how sin would be punished, yet how sinners could be forgiven and receive his love. And so may we, this week, be shocked, shocked that it says, Jacob I loved, and totally understand why it would say, Esau I hated. May we grow in that, I pray. Now, I want to say one more thing before I actually pray, and that is this. I know that even in a room this small with this few people, we are all processing that little phrase differently. I know there are different struggles. I know there are different questions. I know there are things in your soul that maybe you're confused or angry or upset or trying to figure it out, and that's okay. I feel like this is one of those places especially where it just takes time. And you don't need to rush it. We don't need to explain it away. And I think through the Spirit and time, He'll help you. He'll help you. So if you read this and it freaks you out, it's okay. God's on His throne. He knows you. He doesn't expect you to understand it all perfectly. He doesn't expect you to believe it and embrace it all wholeheartedly right now. But I just want to encourage you to be, I guess, patient with yourself as you process passages like this one and especially this one. That God is good, and he has a plan, and that he will help you over time to understand and embrace what he wants you to embrace from hard, hard passages like this. All right, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a way of celebrating Jacob I loved, the miracle of that. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to stand together. We have uh, juice and wine and bread on both sides and gluten-free in the back. You can take your bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and then come back to your seat. And then we're all going to take together after the first song. So if we could stand and go ahead and you can start getting the wine and the juice. Get gluten-free from the back if you need that. Thank you, Jim. All right. Go ahead and begin getting the wine and the juice, and then we'll sing a song in just a minute.